The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 3. I pick up in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. For whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the word of the Lord. A little over a year ago, Russell Voigt was being put before a Senate committee hearing uh, to confirm his appointment as Director of Management and Budget. And he, he said these words, As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. And he was immediately interrupted, and everything he said was completely ignored because there's another part of his Christian faith that had created a firestorm during that hearing. And that was that he believed Jesus Christ was the only way to God. And because of that belief, some senators voted no, simply because he was a true Christian. One, the Atlantic described this portion of the hearing. Voigt's beliefs about the exclusivity of his religion seemed to be the reason why the senator saw him as an unacceptable candidate for office. Quote, I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. I will vote no. And others joined him. Christians are often marginalized, vilified, demonized, and Hitlerized when they say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Now, the criticism of this view is not new. Shortly after I graduated college, I went to join Vista Volunteers, 
VISTA is now under AmeriCorps. And you sign up for a year. I was in northwest Arkansas serving the, that poor region of the country. And just before the year was up, my director called me in to the office. And she said, I know you're about to finish up your term. Would you please re-up for another year? And I said to her, because I had planned to actually leave a month early in order to do some Christian training with crew, I said, I know that you want all of us to have VISTA as number one in our lives. But Jesus Christ is number one in my life. And because of that, I'm actually going to leave a month early to pursue this training because I think I may go into ministry. And she said, well, if you go into ministry, I hope you don't become a missionary trying to convert people and you do like a nice social service. (laughs) And so then I anticipated probably the biggest objection she would have to my faith. So I said, I imagine that my belief that Jesus Christ is the only way to God seems narrow-minded. And she said, yes, it does. So I asked her, do you know why Jesus said he was the only way? She answered, no, I don't know. Why? Are we ready to answer that question today? When we live in a world that is hostile to this this view, can we give a defense of our position about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? And I think this passage really helps us on that road to give such an explanation. In fact, if you really boiled this passage down and you asked the Apostle Paul, why did Jesus, why, why do you say Jesus is the only way? He would say, Christ is the only way because every other religion teaches that people get to God by what they do. Only Christianity teaches that we get to God by what God has done for us. Every other religion teaches that we stand in our own personal righteousness before God. Only Christianity teaches that when we stand before God, we stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So let's unpack this passage this morning. The setting for this is false teachers called Judaizers have come into Philippi. They followed Paul in. And Judaizers would make proclamations of Christ, but they'd follow that up by saying that to be a true believer, you had to be circumcised and you had to completely follow the Mosaic law. And that you find your righteousness and your standing before God and the fact that you follow the Mosaic covenant completely. And so Paul is warning the Philippians about this theology. And he says, verse 2, 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, if you tweeted that out today, what kind of response do you think you'd get? I'm sure you would be called names for calling other people names. Uh, We can only imagine, right? Paul seems pretty vicious in this statement. In fact, I would say that a lot of Christians, including myself, are uncomfortable with putting it in that way. So, is Paul mean-spirited, bigoted? See, a problem we have today is people will take one statement a person makes and create an entire caricature of that person out of one statement. That's wrong. What we need to do is look at the person and look at the character of that individual from whom these words came and start to draw conclusions, try to understand why a person like this would say these words. And so what kind of man was Paul? Well, here's a number of statements in the book of Romans that show us. Romans chapter 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience itself bears witness in the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, I know you're not going to believe this. But this is absolutely true, and I say it before God. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What Paul is saying here is, I would trade my salvation. I would go to hell if that would save my Jewish kinship. Paul was persecuted by Gentiles and by Jewish people. So many of them sought his life. And Paul says, I trade my salvation for them. Is that mean-spirited? How many of us would say that about an enemy? That's the heart of Paul. We go a, a chapter further, and we see him saying this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. He's talking about the Jewish brothers. For I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You know, so today... When somebody makes a statement, we always attributed the worst possible motives if they're opponents of us to the statement. But what does Paul do here? To his opponents, he ascribes the best possible moment, motive. He's saying they're, they're lost, but they do have a zeal for God. The problem, it's not according to knowledge and truth. That's their error. It's not about their zealousness for God. It's about that they miss the truth. And then we turn to Romans 14, 15. And here we had contention actually within the church. There were those who were still holding the Jewish holidays high up and they wouldn't eat meat because it might be sacrificed to idols. Others did the opposite. 
And they, that tension could have blown up the churches in Corinth and Rome. And I'm sure that Paul had a side on this issue. But this is what he says. One person, chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. And Paul's saying here is, you know what? Both sides are right. If they're following God, there's nothing in the word of God that says you have to do this or that. Both sides are right. How often do we hear that today? You know, I'm right, but, you know, I really understand their position, and, and I see from their perspective why they're right. See, we need a a man with a heart like Paul today. And we Christians can't fall in to the environment, lockstep into the environment that's going on around us today. We have to have the character of of the Apostle Paul who would trade his salvation. That's how compassionate he is. Who looks at the best possible motive and who looks and sees how the other side can actually be right in their own way. So we then, but we also need to be like Paul, standing up for the truth. And so we say, why would a man like this write words like this? And the answer is because the issue he is addressing is so critical. He's like a mother screaming at a little boy who's about to run into the street in front of an oncoming car. He's like that father who gets in the face of his daughter when he sees she's starting to shoot up drugs. But this issue is even greater than the issues those children face because it talks to their eternal salvation. And so Paul gets strong, he gets firm. And he says this, we are the circumcision who worship in the spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so this too sounds like, oh, he's bragging. They're wrong. I'm right. But the thing is, he's absolutely right. Everyone outside of Christianity is wrong because Christ is the only way. We cannot compromise that. Paul never would. And so he says this. We're the true circumcision. He's not talking about the flesh. He's talking about the circumcision of the heart where the dependence upon the flesh itself is is cut off. We worship not in a particular place and go through certain forms Our worship is by the Spirit of God. And our glory is not in ourselves. Our glory is in the person of Jesus Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh. This is now what he's going to say. Two things. He's going to say, we cannot stand before God in our own personal righteousness. We fail and we fall if we do. We need to stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so now he deconstructs his old life. 
In some ways, he's like the ex-drug addict who speaks before a high school assembly. He's been there. And he's now warning others, don't follow that path. For Paul himself was a Pharisee on high rise in the Jewish community. And so he says this, I, you should put no confidence in the flesh. And he doesn't say that because he doesn't live a good life. And so, boy, because I'm so awful, I guess I'll go seek the grace of God. No, he had an impeccable religious resume. He says, though I myself could put confidence in the flesh. Then he goes on in verses 4 and 6. If anyone thinks he has a reason that he's so righteous that he could put his confidence in the flesh, he says, I more because I got a better resume than all of you. And then he starts to unpack that resume. Circumcised on the eighth day. So he's saying right at the very, I was a little baby. And I'm following God already. Of the people of Israel, okay? The chosen people, Israel. I'm of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, there's only two tribes that stayed faithful to God, the divided kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. You know where Jerusalem was? Benjamin. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. At this time, a lot of Hebrews were being Hellenized. They were falling into the Jewish culture. Paul says, not me. I stayed strictly in that Mosaic culture. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Who were the most meticulous people in following the law? The Pharisees. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, that doesn't sound like a badge of honor to us, but it was to the Jewish person because he's saying, I am so zealous that I am going to protect God's honor from those blasphemers. And I will persecute those blasphemers so that the name of God will not be defamed. He says, as to the righteousness under the law. Do you see that next word? blameless. How many of us would dare say, you know, the Bible's the the commandments in the Bible? I keep them all. And Paul's saying, those written commandments, I keep them all. What he later learned is, from the Sermon on the Mount, it isn't about the outward, it's the dynamic of what's going on inside. Let's put this in contemporary terms. We might say, I was born, and I was immediately either dedicated or baptized when I was eight days old. I was born into a Christian family that went to church every week. In fact, I went to the best church, Westgate. (laughs) And when a lot of Christians started falling into the culture... Not me. I stood separate from the culture. And as to the commandments of God, I got them all memorized. I follow every one of them. As to my zeal, I stand on the, I stand in Harvard Square, 
And I shout out, Jesus saves and everybody else is going to hell. And as to the righteousness, I obey every commandment. Essentially what Paul's saying, he says, my resume, religious resume, is impeccable. But then it turns in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So Paul is not saying here all of his religious activities were bad. In fact, that list is pretty wonderful, especially the part about going to Westgate Church. So, but the thing is, this is not the righteousness you stand in. This is the type of life you live after you come to Christ because you love Christ. It's not the way you earn your way to Christ. And so Paul says, he calls them a loss. He's saying it's disadvantageous to trust these good religious things. It's a loss to us. In fact, he says, I take these things and I throw them in the trash can. Because they're rubbish. They get in the way of us getting to Jesus Christ. Look at it this way. To come to God, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. To accept Christ as a Savior, you need to believe you need a Savior. If you think... You're in good standing before God because you go to church and because you read your Bible and because you pray. That's an impediment because you are saving yourself and so you don't turn to, you don't need a Savior, so you're not going to turn to Jesus Christ as Savior. There's a story, I think I've told it before. There's a man in the ocean and he's drowning. His friend sees him, so the friend rushes to the lifeguard and says, my friend is drowning, will you save him? And the friend runs back to the shore, and the lifeguard's still sitting in his chair. So he rushes back to the lifeguard and says, my friend is drowning, save him. And he runs to the shore, and the lifeguard's still sitting in the chair. He runs back a third time. And by this time, the, the guy is just about drowning. He's like this. You know, he'd been fighting his way, trying to swim. He couldn't. He's, he's just about to go under completely. My friend is drowning. Will you save him? The lifeguard jumps in the water, swims out to him, grabs him, and saves him. So the friend says, why didn't you do that when I first told you he was drowning? And the lifeguard said, because he was trying to save himself. If I went then, he would have taken us both under. I had to wait till he stopped trying to save himself. Then he'd receive my saving work. And that's what Paul's saying here is, I had to stop trying to save myself. I had to throw all these good works in the rubbish heap 
So then I knew I needed a Savior, and that Savior was there, Jesus Christ. Now, how is Christ our Savior? He says it right at the end. Not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. This is pictured in the book of Zechariah. And we see this, which is a little out of order in my my screens here. Uh, Zechariah chapter 3. We see, it says, Joshua, this is the high priest, is now standing before the angel of the Lord. He's clothed in filthy garments. The angel of the Lord says to, to those standing before him, remove the filthy garments. And then he said, behold, I've taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Let them put a clean turban on your head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with clean garments. So here's the picture. We all stand before God in filthy garments in our iniquity. And this passage shows us we need to get rid of those filthy garments. But we need to put on new garments. And those garments are the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, when Christ died for our sins, he didn't just forgive us of our sin and guilt. He actually gives us his righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says it. Verses 20, 21, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're all separated from God because of our sin, because we've pushed God off the throne of our lives and we've replaced God with ourselves. We've become the many gods because we don't want to worship God. And so we have severed our relationship with God. And he says, but be reconciled to God because for our sake, the Father made him who knew no sin, which is Jesus Christ, to take our sin, to become sin, so that we might, what? Become the righteousness of God. So the work was done at the cross of Jesus Christ when the one who never sinned, he didn't have any personal sin to pay for, but why then does he cry out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because of your sin and my sin that was placed on him so that he not only could forgive us, but place his righteousness on us. And so he says, this happens how? We we might be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. To believe in Jesus Christ is different from a believing about Jesus Christ. Having faith does not mean we believe facts about Christ. It means we put our trust in him. You know, I've heard it a few times uh, over the last couple years, people saying, I can't understand how you believe in a God who would send people to hell because they don't have their theology right or they just believe the wrong fact. And that's the way a lot of people, when we say believe in Christ, a lot of people see it that way. We don't see that's such an unfair, unjust, unloving God because we didn't say the right thing. But that's not what it means to believe in Jesus. 
If I go to the doctor and I'm diagnosed with a fatal disease and he says these harsh, harsh words to me, you're dying. And you're going to die if you just go your own way. But I have some medication. If you take this pill once a week, you'll live many, many, many years of a very normal life. Now, if I don't believe the doctor, I'm in trouble. Not because I, I, oh, I don't believe this particular doctor. It's because by not believing in him, I don't take what I need. But if I believe the doctor, I take what he offers. So to believe in Jesus isn't simply an intellectual fact. It's about a real taking and trusting our lives in his hands. Because if we trust our lives in our own hands, we're in trouble. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. It's pictured in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee and the tax collector go up, and Jesus says, I'm teaching this parable to people who trust in themselves. By the way, when you trust in yourselves, you think you're so righteous, you look down on other people. By the way, personal righteousness is another word for self-righteousness. Now the Pharisee, standing by himself, he prays this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. Who's he trusting in? I, 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 I. But the tax collector, standing far off. By the way, the people he's speaking to when Jesus says, a Pharisee goes up and a tax collector go up. Everybody around saying, the Pharisee goes up, they go, yay. Tax collector goes up, they say, boo. Pharisees were admired, tax collectors were loathed. But the tax collector goes up, standing far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who's he trusting in? He's trusting in God. He says, I'm a sinner. I desperately need a Savior. And he says, God, you have to be that Savior. And there's an unfortunate translation, I think, here. Because the word merciful is not the Greek word merciful. The word merciful is the word propitious. He's saying, God, be propitious to me. And we're all like, what's propitious mean? Propitious means satisfied. God, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I'm in trouble. And I can't satisfy your holiness. I can't satisfy your justice. I can't satisfy your wrath. Because I deserve all of that. And I can't get out. I need you, Lord, to satisfy your own justice, holiness, and wrath, because I can't do it. And of course, we know how God did that. He sent his son, who was God the Son, to take our sin and be the propitiation for our sins. So this is what it means to believe. I'm not the Pharisee who says, I, 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 I. I'm the tax collector who says, I am in trouble because I am 
not just sinned. I am a sinner, so I can't save myself. But I see that God sent Jesus Christ to die for me. I place myself in Christ. Uh, this is an, a story I have shared before, but it's fun. Uh, in the previous church, we had a men's breakfast, and a newcomer came. His name was Steve. And after the teaching, he said, Pastor, uh, I had this dream. Can you tell me what it means? And so he unpacks this dream for me, and I say, Well, Steve, I don't know if it's a revelation from God or you know, exactly what it is, but I do think under the sovereign hand of God that God is telling you, you have to get closer to him. And Steve said, yeah, I know I do. So I asked him, I said, Steve, if you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? We know what the Pharisee would say, I, 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 I. Most people I ask this question say, I, 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 I do this. Steve said, oh, pastor, God would never let me into heaven. I have so much sin in my life. You don't know all I have done. No, God wouldn't let me into heaven. Now, knowing this man had a Catholic background and had some teaching about the cross, I asked him, Steve, why did Christ die on the cross? He said, well, he died for our sins. Steve, did he die for your sins? Pause, he said. Yes, Pastor. That was it. His life was transformed in Jesus Christ. You see, that's the difference between believing about Jesus. He believed about Jesus. He told me Jesus died for everyone's sin, but he had never realized Jesus died for his sins, took his place, freed him from guilt. He doesn't stand before God in his righteousness. He stands before God in the righteousness of of Jesus Christ. But what God offers us in salvation is more than getting to heaven. He said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, not just my personal righteousness. But my personal fortune, my personal health, uh, my personal prestige, I've suffered this all for Christ. And it's all rubbish. In order that I may be, if, that I may gain Christ. Now, Brandon's preaching all of this at Sandy Island. Sorry. <laughs> but what I can say about this. And you continue reading. For Paul, it was all about knowing Jesus Christ. See, that's what we were created for, to know God. You know how Jesus defined eternal life. This is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. It's not know about him, but to know him. We were made for that. We were, ent- we were created to enter into the relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit themselves. To enter into that relationship where we, we bathe in God's love for us just like Jesus did. Where we love him in return like Christ did. 
that we receive the glory that, that God gives us as the image of God. And we turn that glory in praise and in obedience, in living out that image of God. We find our purpose in Christ. We find our hope in Christ. We find our identity as children of God in Jesus Christ. We find our peace and rest in being the child of God. We get everything, not just eternal life. And so when Paul looks at his righteousness, his former life, even the things he had, and says, that's rubbish to know Christ. And that's the journey every believer is on. It starts by standing before God and, like Steve and saying, oh God, there's no reason you should ever let me into heaven. But then saying, yes, Christ died for me. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which speaks to life and so many issues, and especially this gigantic issue. And though Paul's words at the beginning were kind of shaking, we realize how critical this issue is because the path to life, fulfillment, and eternity is only Jesus. May we stand on that though the storms surround us because it means life and death for everybody in our lives. Make us bold like Paul. In Christ's name we pray, amen.